Hello and welcome to the latest HSF Charities podcast. Uh, we're doing a series of podcasts at present with charities that we as a firm uh, work with and have connections with. My name is Richard Norwich and I head up the firm's charities group. Uh, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by my colleague Phoebe Fox, who's an associate in our charities team and is also a disputes lawyer. And today, Phoebe and I have the great pleasure and privilege of speaking with David Clark of RNIB. For people unfamiliar with that, that's the Royal National Institute of Blind People. And David is RNIB's Director of Services, and we'll be asking him about that role in due course. Uh, and this podcast is going to be split into two parts. The first part, uh, I'll be chatting to David about his personal journey and his background. And in the second half, uh, Phoebe will take over and focus more on RNIB itself. Um, but perhaps, David, to, to kick us off, you could help us with that, your, your background and, and really where you came from prior to being with RNIB. Yeah, hi, everybody. Great to, to be here with uh, Phoebe and Richard. Um, so my career before joining RNIB in July 2018 was in the banking sector. So having done a, a degree in politics and a master's degree in diplomacy, I guess the obvious place to go was banking, <laughs> uh, particularly uh, with a couple of recessions I walked into and then the ones that we that we kind of faced later in my career. So, um, yeah, a really enjoyable time. I joined HSBC's graduate scheme, worked in branch banking, uh, corporate institutional banking, back into branch banking and sort of found my, my sort of place in what I would call commercial banking, so largely owner-managed businesses. I worked with eight years with HSBC, three years with Royal Bank of Scotland, and then I went to work for Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank, which uh, merged together with Virgin Money uh, just as I was I was leaving. And the last job I was doing in the in the banking sector was the head of customer banking for London and the South East. So that was looking after all of the retail, uh, private banking, uh, small business, medium sized business um, directly, but also with sort of dotted lines over to other parts of our business, including uh, corporate uh, banking and um, and some of the sort of leverage finance type stuff as well. So rather different um, being at the RNIB, but it was brilliant as a blind person myself, who was born with congenital glaucoma, um, to have the opportunity to sort of bring all what I'd learned from that 24 years in banking to the role with the RNIB. And, and how did you decide to make that transition then, David? What what took you from, from banking to RNIB? I mean, obviously it's your, your personal position, but that obviously doesn't automatically mean you choose to work for RNIB. No, and in actual fact, it, it probably means the opposite in many ways, because I think there is this kind of sort of counterintuitive personal challenge to yourself that actually to sort of, you know, to be considered to have sort of, you know, made the most of your professional life, that that happens within, within a, a commercial setting and and doesn't happen somewhere, you know, that's specific to yourself, such as the RNIB. But for me, um, I had a long history with the RNIB uh, as a very young child, three, four, five years old. Obviously, games, puzzles uh, started to then be Braille books and all the sort of talking books, which has obviously been going on since the 30s. I'm not quite that old. I was born in 1970, <laughs> but, but, you know, it made an immense difference to me. And I still remember the day when my uh, Braille machine, which is called a Perkins, which is a big hunk of metal, kind of arrived with a clunk on the doormat. And... I still remember the smell of that machine and kind of what it meant to me to be able to write and, and be able to write and read with my own my own stuff. And um, so the RNIB always had a really, really special place for me. But the reason why uh, I wanted to go and work at the RNIB was that um, 
I wanted to be a part of what I was bringing about societal change. Um, and having worked with so many businesses and so many different people from different backgrounds and different sectors, you know, I was always the only blind person in the room. And uh, it made me think about representation. It made me think about the fact that that's just odd. Mm. Um, and it also made me think about, you know, how much people actually know. Um, I don't think there is a, 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 well, there definitely isn't an explicit desire to exclude blind and partially sighted people from the professional world, but it happens nonetheless. And I think that's because there's a complete lack of knowledge about how someone like myself would be using you know, PowerPoint, Excel, Word, emails, handling, you know, financial accounts, all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to bring all I'd learned over to the RNIB and um, and work on that whole social change piece around providing really vital services for now, but also working with people across society to uh, ensure that blind and partially sighted people are represented in education, employment, technology, health and all other parts of life. Are you just fascinated to to hear what you're just saying, David, and thinking as you talked about PowerPoint and various other things. Has technology kind of eased some aspects of life for you? Uh, have you noticed that change in the course of your professional career, or has that affected you? Yeah, I mean, hugely. I came into the workplace in 1994, and I remember having a really honest conversation with the recruiting manager at the time who said, you know, we, we really want you to come and work for us, but I just need you to know it's going to be quite difficult because mm. we're not we're not ready. We've not we've not worked with someone like you before. We know you've got the skills. We know you've got the capabilities. We know that you're the kind of person we want working here. But things like our systems, you know, are being upgraded and they're a long way back. And, 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 and you know, that's going to be a challenge. And he was right. It was. Um, mm. But. I think what's wonderful is that it, it coincided, if you like, my sort of time coming into the professional world coincided with a, a huge shift forward in technology. It was around about the time that, uh, for example, the basic Microsoft products started to work seamlessly with screen reading software. Um, so, you know, let's put that into practical. If I'm making a PowerPoint, it will tell me what font, what color. It will tell me whether the font I've chosen means the, the page is too busy. It will tell me all those kind of things just naturally as you would look at the information on the screen to see whether your PowerPoint slide worked or not. Similarly with Excel, it will tell me what cell I'm in, what formula is in that cell. I can monitor cells. I can work with pivot tables. So all that kind of stuff started started to happen. And originally it was access company, access tech companies kind of working backwards from what the likes of Microsoft and others launched. Mm. But then it became fully integrated into the process. And then move forward to the kind of the introduction of the smartphone and particularly um, Apple. You know, my entire life now is basically probably like many people contained on my phone, whether it's buying a rail ticket, walking to an office uh, using Google Maps or whatever it happens to be. You know, my uh, my phone is absolutely integral to that and, and accessibility through voiceover has been built in to that um, to that to the, to the smartphone since around 2008. So technology's made a huge difference and is it is it voice commands which have made the biggest difference there and david or, or just all kinds of different things no so i mean I, i'm sat at my laptop now uh, i'm using a normal qwerty keyboard it's a normal uh lavona laptop uh, but it has something called jaws for windows on it there are others available um but jaws is a speech software that just integrates seamlessly with many many products you know from and particularly the Microsoft products which we use in, in my work, 
which means that you know I can read, respond to emails. I can use you know Teams, PowerPoint, Excel, uh, and actually you know looking right back, one of the basic and most fundamental skills I learned at junior school was to type. Because I went to a, I went to for a specialist education. Not so much happens these days, but I went to a specialist school in Liverpool, and then I went on to secondary school in Worcester, and we we had you know a couple of typing lessons a week at both. And the reason why was because at the time, the only way really of of being able to express yourself in print was to be able to type. And I actually did some of my uh, I was the last year of O level, so many people listening to this podcast won't have a clue what they are. But <laughs> just 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 think of GCSEs, but harder. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I had to do some of those, just just typing out typing it out. And if you made a mistake, tough, you know. Yeah, it's, it's mm. kind of yeah. So so typing was always a really important skill. But of course, now with the technology being available, um, it means that. That typing is 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 still important, but now it's it's important in, in a different way because it means you can you can use all of the things on the smartphone. It's different on the smartphone. They've created a, an absolutely brilliant system where if you if you touch the screen, it tells you what it is there, and if you double touch the screen, it activates it. So it can be a bit of a pain when you're doing text messages and things like that. I mean, there's always the, the dictation function and everything else, but mm. but it's just. You know, when smartphones came in with their flat screens and the touch screens, everyone was like, oh, my goodness, that's the end of my life. You know, I'm not going to be able to use this phone. It's got no buttons on it. But actually, um, you know, I, I got my first uh, iPhone, I think, in 2010, and it just completely revolutionized how I um, how I live my life, really. So uh, amazing. And, and you, you've spoken a lot there about technology and how that's uh, helped you. Has society as a whole, has that moved on too, do you think, David, in terms of you, you talked earlier on about you know, your first job in, I think you said, 94, mm. yeah. and, that, and that people just weren't set up for, for, yeah. for, for working with blind and partially sighted people. Do you think that's moved on as well? I think a number of things have happened. I mean, what I would say is that during my working life, I only ever had, bearing in mind that in my entire working life in banking was customer facing, mm. I only ever had one corporate customer be so shocked that he couldn't speak, that, that I was his bank manager. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, that became an advantage to the conversation uh, because, um, you know, that helped my negotiation tactics. But, <laughs> but, but that's quite a record, though, considering mm. how many people may have reacted um i also have a very short but funny story i used to have to sign all the letters which i did because one of the things my mum taught me very well on was to sign my name mm. and uh and one day we got a phone call uh from somebody that said um this 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 letter you sent me i mean it, it looks like it'd been signed signed by a three-year-old and uh so my my assistant got really angry about it and said mm. uh, my, my uh my manager's blind and 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 that's very rude and uh, send me a copy of that letter i want to see it so the guy faxed over because it was so long ago he faxed over a copy of the letter and uh, actually she'd signed it so uh, <laughs> there you go yeah, it's quite funny but but that just shows you that it was, they were wonderfully protective of me because uh you know they 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 kind of once you work with someone with, with who's blind or partially sighted i think it very quickly you know you very quickly quickly learn to understand that actually with the right support that that there's there's no issues there. That didn't stop people giving me the strangest jobs to do. I remember working in corporate banking where I had to had the job of faxing over some balances to another bank every day. And occasionally, occasionally that bank got them upside down or on a blank sheet of paper when I flipped it the wrong way. 
I mean, a totally stupid job to give a blind person to do. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I spent quite a lot of my early career trying to be the same as everyone else. Uh, mm. And then I realised, actually, there was one day when uh, there was a, a legal document that needed to be acted upon that, that I'd missed in my intro. I mean, you know, imagine me with a pile of paper in the intro that I can't read and I have to scan if I want to read it. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I got the job done, but I said to myself, never again. And so um, I then said, well, I'm not going to deal with paper. And it coincided, of course, with the time when things started to arrive much more by email. And, and so that, that worked. But there was a time in my career where I, I, I had to really think about not trying to play the game like everyone else mm. and adapt and find another way of playing the game to the same standard, but just in a different way. Yeah. I, so you talked about games, and this is going to be a painful segue, but I, I know that you've had some involvement in the uh, British Paralympic uh, Association board. Do you just want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I did play a bit of sport in my time. I was um, I played 144 times for England and Great Britain in uh, in, in five-a-side football. Oh, wow. uh, played in the Beijing and London Paralympics. Um, Fantastic. So when I retired from that, I... Uh, applied to be a member of the newly set up Athlete Commission at the British Paralympic Association and um, became the chair of that actually in 2013. And having chaired that for four years, I then, uh, I then put myself forward for election to the British Paralympic Association's board, which I was successful in and was voted onto that board in 2017. And I'm about to go through another process where I'll hopefully do it for another four years, uh, subject to the electoral process. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's been... A, a fantastic time and but also a very challenging time um you know uh the growth in paralympic sport the interest in paralympic sport support by people like uh channel four um and how that's sort of driven the paralympic movement post london 2012 and how that's changed social attitudes and all the schools programs and all that and and, and the way paralympic sport is, is is thought of and dealt with now in, in the uk particularly is is is, is powerfully palpably changed since my sort of early involvement but of course the delay to tokyo was uh, mm. a huge a huge challenge for us um and uh you know commercial uh sponsors and everything were just absolutely um brilliant but most of all our athletes and our and our team that took the team out there were absolutely brilliant and all the ngbs we worked with um and it was just so wonderful to see the success that the great britain Northern Ireland team had out in in Tokyo and personally I loved sort of being involved with some of the return events unfortunately I couldn't go to Wembley Arena for the for the for the return kind of party but um, I did get to meet some of the guys on the last leg which was always always good fun wow. Adam Hills and friends and yeah. um, and probably my most powerful moment was we went to an event on the Saturday after the Paralympics at the at the uh, at the, at the park there you know by the orbit and mm. to, to see one of the wheelchair racers talking to a seven-year-old girl in a wheelchair who knew every race she'd run and every and every result she'd got and knew what time she wanted to get it was what you would see in any sporting situation with any mm. young child looking up to a sporting hero and it really brought home to me that that's what all this works about it's, uh, it's about driving on the next generation to be inspired to to go and be the best they can be. And to see that young young girl, seven or eight years old in a wheelchair, having those aspirations was just brilliant and, and really brought home to me why I do the work. Wow, what a great story. 
I was going to ask you, you, you mentioned how good the um, your commercial supporters have been with the British Paralympic Association. I, I was going to ask whether funding had been an issue, particularly with COVID and you know, lots of people are struggling from that perspective. But it sounds like you've had some quite good support from what you said. Yeah, we have. I mean, you know, um, I I do sit on the, the the finance committee within the British Paralympic Association. And uh, whilst I, you know, won't go into any details for confidentiality reasons, sure. I think it would be beyond... It, it would be obvious to all of your listeners that you know if you have a, a year's delay to something then that causes significant financial pressures um but the team just worked brilliantly as i say we got some very supportive commercial partners we got some great support through the likes of uk sport and other people um that that you know helped us through that process but you know we have the obligation to say to send the best prepared team to every winter and summer paralympics that is the the basic role of the bpa um, but we also have a responsibility uh, to create a, a better world for disabled people um and it actually the, the 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 sort of the pandemic was a great opportunity in my professional life through rnib but also through um my work with the the bpa to really look at some of those uh, inequalities in society which actually were were you know, really emphasised by the pandemic. You know, the idea that blind and partially sighted people were rationing and worried about getting food. Mm. You know, the fact that for a blind and partially sighted person, it's incredibly difficult to socially distance because how do you know you're two metres away from somebody? Mm. Um, and that's not just true of blind and partially sighted people. There are all sorts of wider issues for the disabled mm. community as a whole around, you know, access to health, access to healthcare, and and all sorts of different things and, and other forms of... Um, you know, uh, things requiring shielding and things like that. And then you put the whole kind of Paralympic training side of it over the top of it and, and you know, being considered elite on the one hand, so being able to train, but having to do that in a very safe way, given some of the, as I say, some of the, the shielding related issues, mm. very, very challenging time. And I think just emphasised, as I say, some of the inequalities that still exist and gave people like me and, and the organisations I'm involved with even more determination to sort them out in the future. I'm conscious as we've gone through two or three topics already, David, we could do a, an episode or a series on each one, but I fear we have to have to keep moving. Um, and I'm conscious we're, we're almost out of time for this uh, episode. But I, I just wanted to, I suppose, as an introduction to our next episode, just come back to uh, the RNIB uh, before uh, you and Phoebe explore that a bit more in part two. Mm. But there, there may well be people listening to this from outside the UK or, or people from within the UK who aren't familiar with RNIB. Can you can you give us the kind of two minute introduction? Yeah, so sure. So the RNIB has been uh, has, has been going uh, for over 150 years now, uh, about 153, um, and. Its original purpose when it was set up by Thomas Armitage was to bring reading and, and writing to, to, to blind people in the UK. Um, but of course, its mission has got much wider than that. And, and I think, you know, some of the things I'm really, really proud of is some of the, and we'll come on to in the, in the next podcast, is some of the incredible innovations that RNIB has been involved with. And that continues um, even today. But um, we are about creating a world with no barriers for blind and partially sighted people and creating a, a real equity for blind and partially sighted people and of course that spans across education employment health social attitudes but it can also uh, go into areas such as transport 
voting, new technology. Um, and, you know, there's a number of things we're seeking to do, um, and some of them are very, very exciting. Uh, a good example is design for anyone is better for everyone. Um, and, you know, we're very proud to work with a number of commercial entities uh, to help them pursue uh, this approach. Um, but of course, we also provide an incredible amount of advice in, and, and, and we get over 5,000 calls a week into our advice line. And we 5, have 5,000? Wow. Mm -hmm, and we have over 100 uh, eye clinic liaison officers in hospitals up and down the country who help people on the point of diagnosis to understand what that means and also to understand that they can carry on living a life of their choice. And where we get that right, people stay in employment, they stay in their relationships, they stay with a strong family around them, they stay carry on doing sports and social activities uh, and, and continue to live a positive life. Where that doesn't happen for whatever reason, of course, the opposite can be true and it can lead to, to, to mental health issues and even, you know, in, in certain cases, sort of um, suicidal thoughts. So it's a really, really important area of our work. Um, but we're constantly having that juxtaposition between the services we operate and the responsibility that society has to operate inclusively so that blind and partially sighted people play a full role in society. And, and your, your job within the RNIB, uh, I believe your job title at least, though, is, is services director. Um, yeah. And, and I, I see on your LinkedIn, you, you, you say uh, very clearly, I'm responsible for delivering an outstanding customer service experience to consumers and businesses throughout the United Kingdom. What, yeah. what, what, what does that mean in practice day to day? So um, in practice day to day, as I say, through our, uh, through our advice, advice service, uh, which can cover uh, employment, uh, technology, education, legal rights, counselling and well-being, all sorts of different areas. I say there's about 5,000 calls a week to that. We also have our community connection networks up and down the UK, which, which work with local, local groups and local people to um, in, uh, provide uh, activities, information, tools to people in, in that local area. So that's a sort of face-to-face -face operation. We have the eye clinic liaison officers within the hospitals who who this year, uh, notwithstanding sort of the recovery from the pandemic, will we'll, we'll, we'll see over 70,000 people um, through right. that route and that's continuing to grow. But our consumer and business work is about, um, we run an online shop with specific products for blind and partially sighted people, including, including technology, which is really important. Uh, and we also work with businesses around uh, consultancy, around their services to make them accessible. Uh, and also we do a lot of uh, transcription. So, you know, into Braille, large print and audio. So, um, you know, there's lots of um, uh, utilities and finance in financial institutions um, who have a regulatory or a customer service based requirement uh, to get information into the hands of blind and partially sighted people in an accessible way. And also, you know, health has become very important in that space too. So, you know, we work in lots of areas. We work in uh, across uh, things like exams, uh, making exams accessible. So there's a whole host of work we're doing with uh, consumers who tend to be blind and partially sighted people themselves or people working with blind and partially sighted people. Uh, but as I say, we do an awful lot of corporate work, which is in support of the same aims to ensure that blind and partially sighted people can access information um, equitably. Great. Well, I think that's uh, that's a fantastic place to leave part one. Uh, of this podcast with uh, David Clark of the RNIB and uh, you will uh, uh, in the next episode you'll hear part two uh, in which my colleague uh, Phoebe Fox will be talking to David further. In the meantime thanks very much for listening.